Hey, future millionaires. I'm excited to announce my new Purpose of Wealth event being held at the Capitol Theater in Lebanon, Tennessee on Friday night, October 29th. That's Friday night, October 29th. We're going to have four hours of financial teaching from four awesome speakers. That's including Pastor Ben Graham of Music City Baptist Church, Sean T. Feldhahn, author of Thriving in Life and Money, and my good friend Jeremy Newsom, CEO of Real Life Trading, are going to join me to talk about life, money, and faith. Get tickets at purposeofwealth.live. That's purposeofwealth.live. Or visit themillionairechoice.com for more info. I look forward to seeing you there. Is money slipping through your fingers? Are you missing your opportunity to become a millionaire? Welcome to The Millionaire Choice, where we talk to millionaires and future millionaires about how to build wealth and what to do with it once you have it. We're here to help you do two things. Make your millionaire choice and create your own millionaire plan. Here's your host, speaker, wealth coach, and author of The Millionaire Choice. He made his choice and he created his millionaire plan at age 25. Now it's your turn. Welcome your host, Tony Bradshaw. Welcome back to the Millionaire Choice Show. And today on the show, we've got Steve Goodman from, let me see if I can do this, Steve, Long Island. Did I do it? Did I do it okay? Halfway well? Great job. Great job. So Steve's going to be talking to us today about family business succession. So he's he's grown up with an accounting degree, which we'll get into, CPA, MBA in finance, works for such people as J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, which I'll bring up a little bit later because you guys have heard me talk about J.P. Morgan Chase and some of the stuff they're doing. I want to get Steve's take on it. And uh, his firm is called SHG Planning, shgplanning.com if you want to check that out. I'm sure he's got a wealth of knowledge for us today and can't wait to, for you to share your story, Steve. you got some great stuff to share. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, we were joking when Steve got on because he's got this great Long Island accent and I've got this Southern, uh, I don't even know if I can bring it out sometimes. We'll have to see. Uh, ain't hey, We, we ain't going to do that, Steve. We're not going to talk about it, okay? So, but people tell me I'm losing my Southern accent a little bit. I don't know about that. Maybe I'm just talking too much. But uh, so let's say you grew up in the Bronx. So I've been to New York like two times. I've never been into the Bronx. We've stayed on you know Long Island. And uh, shopped around, moved around over there. Went over to Serendipity. If you guys have seen Serendipity movie uh, with uh, John Cusack and uh, Kate Beckinsale, it's a great love story movie. A lot of fun. Uh, but Serendipity is up in New York. Yep, in the city. Yeah, have you been there? Have you been there and had some ice cream, Steve? Oh, yeah. Long, long time. You know, it's pretty much a, a tourist place. So the people who live there don't go there. But it's, you know, if you like ice cream, they got good ice cream. Yeah, so when I was, at, the first time I went to, up there to New York, my boss was like, hey, let's go to Serendipity. And there was like four guys. And we waited in line, got into Serendipity. It was nothing like what was in the movies. And sat down and we looked around and all of a sudden my boss got very uncomfortable because at every single table there was a couple. Every table had a guy and a girl at it. And here we were, four dudes, sitting at our own ice cream table. <laughs> We I felt a little guys, out of place. I bet you guys ate more than the average other table. That's for sure. Yeah. I think we choked that ice cream down pretty quick because my, my boss was not somebody who would uh, like to sit around in a place that he was uncomfortable with. So we got in and got out pretty quick. But now, uh, so you lived in the Bronx and you, as we were talking in the pre-show, uh, you characterize that as the per- poorest suburb in New York. So what was that like? And, you know, growing up family wise, because you didn't grow up with money. No, 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 I, I, I didn't. 
No, I didn't. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the Bronx is probably two things that the Bronx is most known for besides possibly crime and things like that. One is obviously the New York Yankees because Yankee Stadium is in the Bronx. Um, obviously, I've been a Yankee fan for my whole life. Uh, and the other is the Bronx Zoo, you know, in botanical gardens. You know, those are probably two most famous things in the Bronx. Uh, you know, the Bronx of the five boroughs of the of of New York City, you know, is clearly the poorest of the five boroughs. And I, you know, I didn't grow up destitute, but I certainly grow, grew up, I guess, what you would say would probably be, you know, lower middle class kind of upbringing. You know, food was on the table, but not much more than that. Yeah. And and so growing up like that, though, your your dad, now you were sharing with me, your dad, you didn't grow up with both parents in the household because your dad uh, struggled real, real, quite a bit with health issues, right? Yeah. Yeah. He got sick when, when he was 40 and I was 12 um, and, <clears throat> you know, pretty much was bedridden and then passed away when he was 48 and I was 20. Um, so, you know, my dad, you know, obviously wasn't, you know, a very instrumental part of my life because prior to him getting sick, you know, he worked six days a week, you know, back then didn't spend a lot of time with my dad. Uh, my mom obviously was more influential. Unfortunately, she also died fairly early, but because my dad got sick so early, you know, financially, you know, there really was no income coming in and my mom needed to care for my dad and she tried to work also, but, you know, you know, again, barely made ends meet. Yeah. So you lost your dad at, when you were 20 and your mom, was it at 28? 25. 25. So five years later. So you didn't have any support structure in there. And I think what's interesting about that, you know, I was, I had my support structure growing up and not that my parents managed their money well, but I was kind of waking up and realizing that I had, you know, poorly financially, financially managed my money at age 25. But my parents were still around. So I had, you know, not that I leaned on them or got anything from them, but they helped me get through college. Um, you know, I got scholarships and stuff, but they did pay quite a bit towards my college bill and helped support me there. And, uh, you know, some other sacrifices they made, they made a lot of sacrifices for me, but you didn't have that support structure, man. You're just like a, a recipe for somebody saying, Hey, there's no way this guy, Steve Goodman can become a millionaire. There's no way he can build any wealth. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, to be honest with you, I never in a million years would have believed it, you know, based on where I came from, because also I wasn't surrounded you know, besides that, I didn't have any money. I wasn't really surrounded with people that had money. You know, like we grew up pretty simplistic. I mean, I was probably the poorest of my friends, but but none of them really had, you know, a lot of money. Um, you know, a couple of them had a home. So I guess there was at least something there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, sometimes in life, you you it makes you or it breaks you. You know, that's that's the type of way to look at it. And um, you know, for me, one of the good things is I met my wife when I was very young and she also had a lot of sadness in her life early on with parents. So we kind of, you know, I guess the two of us, she certainly straightened me out. They've always said like, there's nothing better for a, a wayward man, young man or boy than to find the right woman to straighten them out. So clearly there's no question that if I didn't meet my wife, when I met my wife, my story would have been very different and probably not as good of a story, you know? Yeah. So I have to give a lot of credit to, you know, her kind of putting me on the right path. Yeah. Now you got to tell me how, how long have you guys been married? A long time. I, I met my wife in 1974 
and we got married in 1979. So I'm 64. So we, you know, I've known my wife since I was like 17. So, yeah. and, you know, so it's a long time. Now, did you know when you met her, did you, was it like a love at first sight thing? Did you like, I'm marrying this girl or did it take you a little while to realize that? I was probably too stupid at 17 to really know, <laughs> to know whether or not, you know, but you know, we, we were serious with each other from the time we met and it just continued. It just continued that way. And, uh, so I guess you yeah, had to some degree it was love at first sight. Yeah. I had, uh, when I got out of college, you know, I, I was, I didn't get married till I was almost 28. I was one month short of 28, but the, the company that I worked for out of college, uh, the owner of the company, uh, met his wife and married her in two weeks. Oh, wow. It's two weeks. And he's like, wow. I'm marrying that girl. You gotta get married. And yeah. And so when I was working for him, he was, uh, let's see, I think he was in his seventies. They've been married like 50 plus years. Wow. Yeah, and I'm like, wow, that's that's a great story. They were happy, you know. They were made for each other. It's is there's a great story. They're cool people, um, but yeah, it doesn't work out that way for everybody. So congratulations for being married that long, right? Thank you. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, there's no question that you know when when you have a, a tough upbringing, and somebody else has had a tough upbringing, being with somebody that understands makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah, they can understand your pain where you're coming from and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, normally, I don't talk about the show that much, but you know, even though uh, you know, my wife and I are celebrating 23 years of marriage this year, and I, I, I think I've said this, it was probably 18 years of misery for her, and uh, you know, we struggled through some things, but the last five years have been really good for you know on, getting things on the right track. But mainly because I've gotten my uh, my act together and uh, started trying to fix a lot of the stuff that I messed up and. And you don't realize you're going into that. Her parents were married 50 years. My parents were married uh, 46 years when my mom passed away. And uh, so you got that rich heritage, like marital heritage, but it doesn't make it any easier. You still have to fight through, you know, all of the challenges and all the differences and things. But what's interesting, and just talk about like synergy, like um, there's just so many things that my wife and I have in common. Uh, we were even talking about the dogs, the same types of dogs that we have. Uh, we both had collies as children. Uh, cause we, we just bought some dogs for our kids. Our kids have allergies. So the first time they're getting, uh, some of our girls are getting pets. So we got found some puppies and, uh, yeah. And so we had like the same dog, uh, both of our dads, we were, my wife and I were both born in, in the United States, obviously, um, while our, our dads were in Vietnam. So our dads were both in Vietnam in 1970. She was born. My wife was born in September, 1970. I was born in November, 1970, just two, two months behind. And, uh, yeah, it was just a lot of, a lot of interesting things. We were like, how, wow, how two people that met like out of the blue somewhere. And, uh, she's not a native Nashvilleian, although I am, she grew up in Wyoming and then ended up in Nashville. So there's a lot of interesting things. I, I like to believe that, uh, for the people that want to go there, you know, from a spiritual perspective, at least in my case, I don't know that it's, it applies to everybody, but just really feels like God connects you to the to the right person. So in our case, it, it's kind of a weird, a lot of weird circumstances. Maybe some people would say the universe brought us together. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because just so, so many odd things, you know, it's like, how, how did, how did we like connect and, and the blue, but, it, but going alongside that. So you're helping, uh, so you got your money thing figured out. When did you start going, Oh, I don't want to be a broke dude anymore or come from a broke family. You know, you started to do that mental shift because that's the first thing that has to happen is your mindset has to shift. So you can break free from like your past and your history. Yeah. You know, I guess when I moved from the Bronx and I moved out to Long Island and I 
you know, I still didn't have a lot of money, but I started to meet people where in the Bronx, like I didn't meet anybody that really had money, but like in Long Island, I, I started to meet people that had money. So it wasn't just like something like you watch on television or watching a movie, you know, it was real. And some of the people that I met, I wasn't also impressed with. And I said, you know, I think I'm a lot sharper than a lot of these people that I'm meeting. Now, yeah, they probably got a little bit more of a head start than I did. And that certainly helps. But, um, you know, I, I think I could be pretty successful. And, you know, I think when I was working more on my second place, when I was at JP Morgan, which back then was chemical bank, um, I was in departments that dealt with the very rich and I, started to just read a lot. I've always been a big reader, always wanting to learn. And I got really educated in certain subjects that ended up being some of the things that I ended up going into when I left there to start my own business. Yeah. And so your time at JP Morgan Chase getting around people, I think it's a, you know, there's a, a, a rule around that. I think a, a principle, which is uh, if you, if you hang out with people that are like at the same economic level you're at, then you're probably going to end up at the same place, like in the next five years. What is it? The next in the next five years, you're going to be uh, more like the people you hang out with, or more you know, like an average of the income that they make. And uh, so you basically started introducing yourself or getting introduced to people that were kind of like in a different socioeconomic status. It really started changing your thinking. And uh, yeah, and obviously you were a somewhat confident young man at the time, right? Yeah. Look, uh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of when you. I'm going to quote you real quick. Uh, these guys aren't that sharp. I think I'm sharper than some of them are. So I think I can be successful. Yeah. And, and look, you know, the fear wasn't there because I dealt with a lot of things in my life that were a lot scarier than that. So I figured, you know, let's go for it. Yeah. You had to overcome a lot of challenges just through life with your dad and your mom and probably some very emotionally challenging things too. I can't imagine. So like making the shift from being broke to like this idea of becoming a millionaire, it's probably was just a very natural thing for you. I'm thinking. Once it, and, look, once with it. and look, to be honest with you, I mean, I've, you know, I'm 64 now, you know, obviously I'm wealthier today than I was yesterday and the day before, but, you know, I was what you would view as a successful person, I would say probably almost right around 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even today, I'm still a Bronx guy, even though I live in Long Island, like most of my friends know this about me, like you you just can't get the Bronx out of Steve. Like, you know, I'm just, that's who I still am. You know, I'm still worried about like, am I going to have money to put food on the table? Like it's just, it's never gotten out of me. It probably will never get out of me to the day I die, you know, which, you know, to some of that, it's bad because it gives you some stress you don't really need to have to have, but some of it just always keeps you grounded, you know, and it, makes you just always be careful and smart about what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a, another principle in there, right? Is uh money wise, it's, it's not that you're being stingy or like confident, but just frugal. And um, as I talk to some people is it's like people who are making big money, let's say like NFL players, for example, let's use them is that there's this misconception that the party's never going to end. Right. And so they're not prepared when it does. So when the times are good, they're really good. But when the times are bad, they can get really bad if you're not prepared for it. And, you know, the, the economic crashes of 2000, 2008 
2009, right when the real estate market crashed and everybody thought the banking system was going to implode. Uh, there were a lot of people that weren't ready for that, right? And so having that mindset, and I had a mentor that was telling me, it's like, it's, it's respect for money, right? Is the way to put it. It's like, money is a tool, but you still have to respect it. You don't have to like be greedy about it or anything. You just have to have this consciousness about where it needs to go, how it functions, what to do with it. Don't go out and buy brand new cars. I, I saw a car, was it? I looked at a truck yesterday. So I bought a new car yesterday. And um, I was wanting something a little nicer than my Jeep. My Jeep is starting to become the the uh, trail Jeep. And so I'm beating it up pretty good. So I, I went out and got a little SUV, two years old, saved, you know, took, took uh, saved on the depreciation. But they had this truck on the lot. And it was this huge uh, Dodge Ram truck, huge thing, huge truck. And I'm like, all right, I think that thing's probably, first I told my wife 80 grand, and I said 60 and I asked the car dealer. And he goes, that's $85,000 truck fully loaded like and i'm like oh my gosh what is that like a thousand dollars a month he said i think he said it was 1300 1400 bucks a month for that for that truck to finance that truck and my jaw dropped because i'm like that's a house payment like my my second house my payment was 1300 a month for a 135 thousand dollar house and at the end of five years that truck's not going to be worth probably 15 grand 20 grand maybe 25 but a house in this area is going to go from, you know, 130 grand in five years. Right now, it could go to 270. Like, it, it could be crazy. And, uh, it, you know, it's the whole principle of buying appreciating items, right? Having the respect for money. If you're going to buy depreciating items, that's where you spend your money. You're going to end up broke at the end of 50, 60 years. If you can train yourself to buy appreciating items more often then you're you're going to end up somewhere. Everything you spend, all the money you earn, it's going to it's going to replicate, and make more money. So, um, yeah, well, yeah. Just to add something there, I think you know there's a very very big difference between income and wealth, and I think that you know people who have big incomes, they're wealthy, they're wealthy that year because they have income, but they're not wealthy. They don't have the protection of wealth. And, and I think that one of the biggest problems that people have, first off, it's too easy to spend money today. Like, it's just too easy. Like, you know, with Amazon and like, you don't have to look with COVID, you know, people never left the house and you just had boxes come into your house every day. Like, you don't have to do anything. You could just buy, buy, buy. And some people are like addicted to shopping. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's too easy to spend money. So, so to me, you know, one of the most important things, like like lessons I would give people guidance in accumulating wealth is besides obviously you should spend less than you make after tax, obviously. But when you're fortunate enough to get a nice bump up, you know, whether it's you're in business and your business starts to do better or you get like a really sizable raise or a big bonus, you know, to me, the advice I would give people is every time you get a bump up, don't change your life for at least five years. Like five years, continue to live your life the way you were living it before you got the big bump up, then assess everything. And then hopefully you've saved a nice amount of money over that five-year period of time. And if you want to give yourself a little bit of reward and bump up your lifestyle a little bit, bump it up a little bit, maybe not to the level that matches now this higher income you have, but higher than you had before and sit there for a period of time. The problem is that that's not human nature. 
You know, human nature is I make more money, I spend more money, I want nicer things because people, most people get pride and ego out of what other people think about them and their success. So like if you're sitting with, if you make $500,000 a year and you have no money in the bank, or you make $500,000 a year and you got $5 million in the bank, the only thing that other people know, they don't know whether you have nothing in the bank or you have five million in the bank. They just see the lifestyle you live. You know, do you, what's your house like? What's your cars like? What kind of vacations you go on? You know, how you spend your money, how you dress, where you go out to dinner. And most people, it's just very difficult for most people to like say, you know what? I don't care if people think I'm not doing, like I'm doing much better than they think I'm doing rather than where it's typically People think I'm doing a lot better than I'm really doing. That's how it is most of the time. Yeah. But, but be able to mentally say, I'm I'm really so confident in myself. Like I'm okay that I'm doing so much better than anybody thinks. I don't need that ego. I I'm just being prudent myself. But that's just not human nature. And that's part of, I think, why people just have a lot of trouble accumulating wealth. Yeah, I agree with you because there's this kind of, they call it like what, keeping up with the Joneses. And yep. so you're, you've got this idea of, you know, I've got all, get all this stuff, make myself look good and medicate too, because, you know, everybody's got their issues, but some people are medicating like emotional issues or trauma from their childhood by spending money. And, you know, for some people, it brings them security. And I'm just as guilty of that sometimes. I'll go through phases. So I'll be really tight for two or three months and all of a sudden I'll splurge. And I'm like, man, I spent a lot of money this month. And it's uh, it's like I made up for the three months before that I didn't spend anything, and uh, and that that's okay to a degree, but you've got to keep like moving the needle for moving the the lines forward, uh, you know, like investing and just training your brain to invest. Like you were saying before, when you get a bump up in salary, most people spend it. I always remember uh, George Griswold, right? Was it Griswold or what was his name? It was Griswold. What was his name from Family Vacation? You know what I'm talking about? When he goes out and gets the pool, he's waiting for that big check to come in from his Christmas bonus and he, uh, Chevy chase and he wants to go buy that pool and he gets his Christmas bonus. And it's like a 10th of what he was planning on getting. And he's like, uh, I've already like put the order in for the pool. Yeah. He already <laughs> spent it. He already spent it before he even got it. And he got a 10th of what he was wanting, like that. Like he should have taken that. He should have taken that flipping check, that bonus, just stuck in an investment account, waited five to seven years and then got a free pool, you know, right. waited, you know, and then he kept his money, kept his, his nest egg. And that's what we're trying to teach people to do. I believe Dave Ramsey calls that the incredible uh, free car, you know, using sinking funds to, to, to build that. So, well, you help people with businesses, man. And I knew I grew up in a family business, not, not me, myself, but the, my first job out of college was a, I think, third generation family business. And let me tell you, oh, and I worked for 15 years in a family business too, but it was a first generation transferring to the second generation. And I think a lot of times the first to second generation, I'm guessing is probably pretty smooth, right? Is it the third, is it the second to third generation where it starts to get more difficult? Every generation, it's more difficult as it goes on, except that every generation has learned something from the mistakes the prior generation made. First generation doesn't have anybody to learn from, but um, I mean, we, you know, we can delve into that. I mean, that, Family businesses is an emotionally wrenching, you know, process to plan with people because I 
I always use this analogy. You know, I have two children that they're not involved in my business, but you know, I'm sure you know this seeing, you know, with your children growing up, you know, you, they're always playing you against one another and you're always reinforcing to your children how, look, I love you all the same. You know, you know, your, your sister got a phone when she was 14. You'll get a phone when you're 14 or you got a TV and this one will get a TV or this one got a red lollipop and you'll get a red lollipop. And it's like, you go through life as parents because they're always, oh, well, you, you, you favor my sister, you favored my brother. And, and you're like, of course you love your kids all the same. So you're like, sometimes you may want to kill one more than the other, but you love them as parents the same. And, and like, you're always telling them that. And then, like I said, you wake up one day and you're like 65 years old and you got this big business and you got three kids and one of them is in your business and two of them are not. And almost all your assets are in your business. And you sit there and go, holy smokes. Like I've been telling these three kids my whole life or their whole lives, how much I love them the same. And I'm always going to treat them the same, but like, am I going to leave this business a third, a third, a third to my three kids when only one of them is in the business? Like they're going to kill each other. But like, if I give the business to the one in the business, I don't have enough other things to leave to the kids who are not in the business. How am I going to deal with this? And you know, if I, explain this to my, well, let's say I have two boys and a girl. If I explain this to my kids, one of my daughter-in-laws doesn't really love my wife and I that much to begin with. And like, if she thinks that her husband's going to get the short end of the stick, I may not see my grandchildren. She may say, you know, I don't like your parents to begin with. And now they're really a bunch of, you know what, screw them. You know, I'm not bringing the grandkids to them. They're not seeing their grandkids. Like, so like, could you imagine like, as a, you know, I'm a grandpa, you know, there's nothing better than being a grandpa and a grandma, you know? And it's like the last thing in the world you ever would want is to not see your grandkids because you're pissed off your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law and stuff. So like when you deal in family businesses, there's so many emotional things of how to deal with these things. Cause like the kids are saying like, you know, dad, my brother or my sister is in the business. Like dad, you built this business. Like they just went to work for you. I decided to do something else. You know, they were really more dependent on you. I, I at least figured out a way to make a living on my own. And now my brother or sister are going to get rewarded by being in this business that you built. And they're going to be able to live this lifestyle much better than myself and my other sibling. That's just not fair. And and dad's like, I get it. But like, I'm not leaving this business to, to you guys. If you're not involved in the business, you could have come in the business. And it's like, you could just see how like, it becomes because the business is like another child. It's like, I got three kids in a business. I got like four kids, you know, and it's like, I got to figure out a way that they're all going to talk to one another. And it's, it could lead to very, very difficult emotional conversations. Yeah, I can imagine. I just had to laugh a little bit because I take a slightly different parenting approach with my kids. Um, and we'll talk about it in a second. But the company I worked for, I saw some of that because it was uh, the owner who was the second generation. He, at least I think he was second. He might have been third, but I think he was second. And, uh, you know, he's getting up there and he was trying to divide it up between the three kids and the son-in-law who was also in the business. And uh, there was really only one of them that was capable of running it, but he was the baby of the three. And so the, the older brother and the older sister kind of treated him like the baby. And so he didn't get the respect that he deserved, but he was really the only competent one that could have run the business. Right. And and then he just finally got fed up with the whole family dynamic and started his own thing. And so they had they were forced to sell the business because there was nobody competent enough to run it. 
And so they had to sell it off. And uh, which is like so disappointing because it was a great company. But I had to laugh because my kids, I took a different approach. And so I, I, I don't know if it's good parenting, but they're turning out all right so far. So I got my oldest is 21. My youngest is nine. But I'm like, life's, I'm going to say it just real honestly, life's a bitch sometimes. It's tough. <laughs> and so I'm like, I purposely put trying times into my kids' lives to make things a little bit difficult for them. And I'm like, so I don't mind treating my kids differently at different times. Like, I'm like, you're all my favorite at different times. You know, so I don't say, oh, I treat y'all equally. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't treat y'all equally. Overall, the scope, I treat y'all equally. But today I'm not. So you get to go do this and you get to sit at home or you don't, you know. And so I purposely make them have to wrestle with those very, very difficult emotions, right? And then I come back and say, oh, I love you. Let's go do this. But I'm trying to help them navigate their own emotions and feelings to ride. Like life's a roller coaster. You know, it's up and down. You've been through it. Like you've been through it worse than I have. And uh, you had no stability and, and you had to figure it out, right? So, but I've seen that in, you know, two family businesses where you're like, okay, very seldom do you have six kids that can all operate on the same level. They all have their strengths and weaknesses. Some of them have a pension for business. Some of them don't. Some of them have a pension for, you know, nursing or for nurturing or taking care of people. Some of them, some of them don't have a pension for business. So just navigating that's very interesting. But, but purposely, I think, uh, putting transition. So I, I could just imagine myself in that boat and going, you know, I would have, I don't think I would have a lot of trouble, like saying the, having the tough talk and like, you know, with it. But I guess when you're, you know, you're dealing with, like you said, grandbabies and, daughter-in-laws that are kind of like irritable towards you. Yeah. I think that could be probably difficult because they're so influential. Like when your, your kids get married, the wife becomes so influential. And if they're, I'm sure in some cases might be, be very insecure. And so they don't like strong parents in the picture, right? Because that creates more insecurity for them. So no, anyway, no. what's the, go ahead. No, 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 no. You're right. And I, and I understand your, your position and in, in parenting, um, but money, you know, there, there's, there's sisters that were as close as two or three sisters could be and mom dies and she leaves, you know, she's got some jewelry or China or some, you know, ornament that's important to the family. And she just decides, okay, I'm going to give this one to this daughter and this one to this daughter. And like, Two daughters, two sisters don't ever speak to one another again after how mom left things because they're so, one of them's like so insulted that this one got something and I didn't get it. When maybe sometimes the best thing in the world is just sell all the crap and just give you, tell your kids, there's no way for me to figure out who's going to get what. I only got this one ring that I know you all want. So unless you're going to share it, each of you are going to keep it for a week and pass it around to one another. I can't figure out one to give it to. So just sell the damn thing and take the money and go buy three separate rings that you all could have. Individually, <laughs> you know what I'm much saying? smaller, much smaller diamonds. So, well, yeah. So it's like, but there's, there's stuff like money. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. Like money does bad things to sometimes good people. Like, yeah, yeah. It just, it just does. You know, like things happen. People, um, you know, I, you know, I use this example with people that picture this. Okay, you know, you're you're planning. You and your wife, you're a successful guy, and you know, 
you're sitting down with a lawyer and you're going to do your wills. And, you know, usually one of the, your kids are getting a little older, but you still have some young ones. So usually one of the big issues in the conversation is, um, you know, who's going to be the guardian of our kids? You know, if something happened to both of us, you know, go off if we're in a car accident or a plane crash, you know, what, what are we going to do? And like, your wife's like, I'm not, it's not going to be your parents and it's not going to be your brother and sister. I want it to be my brother or sister. And then you're like, there's no way it's being your brother and sister. I want it to be my parents or my brother. And like, you're sitting there and like, sometimes people never do a will because they're fighting over the one in a thousand chance that the two of you are going to die at the same time. Because once one of you dies, like if it's you and your wife and you die first, she's just going to go to the lawyer afterwards and change it however she wants anyway. You're dead. There's nothing you could do about it anymore, you know? But it's in that <laughs> event that something could happen. So then it goes even a step further. So watch this, okay? You, you're wealthier. You and your wife are wealthier than the sister that's going to be left the kids and as a guardian, right? And the sister's willing to be that. And you and your wife die. And, you, and your wife's sister's got three kids and you got three kids, which probably means the house that this sister is living in fits three kids, right? Especially since they have less money than you, so they probably don't have a big house. So now what happens when when the Brady Bunch gets together and now all of a sudden there's six kids? Like, is my sister, like, how's my sister going to fit my kids in her house? Like, I don't want my kids to be like an imposition to her. So, and like, I don't want her kids to feel like this is BS. Like I had my own room. And now I'm sharing a room with my cousin because their parent died because they're like, they're 10 years old. They're not rationally on my feel bad for my cousin. They're saying like, somebody's in my room now that I had before. So a lot of times people don't think of those things. Like, like maybe I have to leave some money to my wife's sister so she could buy a bigger house or expand her house so that my kids could be comfortable there or, or, I leave money and I want my sister to send my kids to camp, your wife's sister, but she can't afford to send her own kids to camp. So now she's going to have six kids in a house, three of them are hers and three of them are her sister's kids who come from a wealthier family. And what is she going to send the three kids to camp that are her sister's kids and her three kids are going to sit at home and not go to camp? What do you think is going to happen between the relationship between the cousins when that happens? So it's like, this is the kind of stuff that people don't think about. And like, you need to think about this stuff because if you don't, it's bad enough you're gone and your kids are going to be, you know, you know, have parents, they're orphans to some degree, but now you're putting them in a, in a, in a situation that's going to lead to all this conflict, which is the last thing in the world you want your kids to be in. So I'm just using that as a hypothetical example. These are the types of things people have to think about. Yeah, I think that's good. And you mentioned a good point, like the will. And uh reminds me, we need to update ours as well. Um, kids are a little bit older. Things have kind of changed a little bit. But, uh, you know, having that will, the, the, the pieces in place, but also thinking about the possible circumstances. And it is hard, man. Like it took us, we had to go around several rounds trying to figure out where our kids were going to go and who they were going to stay with. And uh, people, I, you know, my wife was comfortable with, but I wasn't comfortable with, you know, and even family members. And in the end, we didn't end up deciding to leave our kids with family members. We went with uh, close family friends um, instead of family members. And so that's even a, even a more unique circumstance because 
I found myself with a list of friends that I trusted that was a really, really short, <laughs> short list, yeah. you know, and, and uh, it's sad, but it's kind of the way we are to get busy with our business, but with our business and things that we're doing. But now you talk, you do estate planning too, right? As well. Yes. So let's talk about that because you mentioned a will, but what are some of the other big estate things? Because, you know, people listen to this show, you future millionaires that are listening, um, you know, you may not feel like estate planning is your thing right now because you're still trying to get to your first million, but uh, it is something you need to train yourself on before you get there. So it's, I've always found it's better to start learning and uh, expanding your mind and how your mind works because it'll, it'll all start coming together and working together. So when you start thinking about estate planning and then as you're on your millionaire journey, those pieces will come together because you'll start just thinking on a whole nother level. And, and Steve, you're, you're doing some of that estate planning stuff. So what are some of the big things you're having to help people navigate? Well, look, you know, obviously, you know, a 30 year old who's just starting to make money is very different than a 50 or a 60 year old that's accumulated tens of millions of dollars. So, you know, I deal with a lot of very affluent people. So the planning becomes very, very sophisticated. Um, you know, various types of giftings and selling of assets and discounting and buying insurance and using trusts. It's very complicated. You know, for the, for, you know, as you mentioned earlier, your audience, a lot of it is people in their 20s to 40s. They're starting out, they're starting to build wealth. You know, the most important things are some of the things I just talked about. It's like, you know, having a will, who's going to be take, you know, who's going to watch your kids, making sure the person's your kids are not going to be in a situation where everybody's not going to be comfortable. You know, if you leave money to your kids, you know, making sure it's in trust so that when they're 18 years old, they're not going to come into hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars and just piss it away. So, so it's protected in trust. And then who do you trust to manage the money? I'm not talking about necessarily the Merrill Lynch of the world or that. I'm talking about who's going to be the trustee, you know, who's the person who picks the Merrill Lynch and oversees everything and make sure everything's done right. Like that's important. Then there's things like durable powers of attorney. So if, if you're not dead, like when you're dead, the person that steps in to become you is what's called the executor. And then it could be a trustee if it's put into a trust ultimately. But if you're alive, but you're not functioning, you're in a car accident, you're unconscious, you know, had a head injury, then there's a thing called the durable power of attorney. And every state's different in how they handle it. But that's in essence, now you, you somebody becomes you. In essence, somebody has the ability to, to write checks and call up a bank and get information that is really, they step into your shoes because you're not dead, but you're not functioning. You're not able to function right now. So you need that. You need things like, you know, a, a healthcare proxy where go off a bit, you rush to an emergency room and you can't make a medical decision for you. You know, you would just think like a wife can make or a husband can make those decisions, but hospitals are concerned because they don't know there could be somebody else that really has the right to make those decisions. And then if they listen to somebody that doesn't really have that right and something goes wrong, then they could be in a major lawsuit. So like, you have to have what's called a healthcare proxy. So you have something you can carry it on your phone that says, you know, I'm, it's usually obviously a husband for a wife and a wife for a husband. But then what happens if it's, you know, there's only a mom or a dad and they, they get sick. Is it the son? Is it the daughter? Is it the oldest one? Is it all of them? Like, so you need to have that kind of stuff. And then you have things like, you know, living wills, which are like, you know, pulling the plug and do you want the plug pulled? Do you not want the plug pulled? You know, you know, it's crappy stuff to think about. Like, especially when you're 20 to 40 years old, you know, you're hoping that it's going to be a long time before any of those things are going to be relevant. But look, you know, 
people do die at 20 and 30 and 40, you know, generally from accidents, but even sometimes getting sick. And you have to plan every day like it's your last day because it may be, you know, and if you, if you, if every day you view, ah, it won't be my last day, you're going to be right probably about 16,000 times, but then you're going to be really wrong one time, you know, and that one time when you're really wrong, you're going to end up leaving a disaster, you know, a disaster situation when that ends up happening. Yeah. And, you know, sharing some personal details in 2016, talk about like people don't think the party's going to end. You know, 2016 was a bad year for me and my wife. And, and we were dealing with a lot of that kind of stuff. First, I, you know, left, uh, you know, my, my job with uh, Dave Ramsey that put some stress on the family. Uh, my, my mother-in-law passed away from cancer after about two years fighting cancer. Uh, she was 70 years old, so relatively young. And then in August, we buried her July 29th. And in August, we found out that my mom had cancer. And very quickly after looking at some scans, I'm like, man, she's not going to do well. Like, this is not going to go well. And I didn't say that to her, of course, but she passed away and we buried her November 30th. So just like four months after, four or five months after my mother-in-law died. And then, you know, right now um, we're dealing with the same thing with my wife's brother and he's 48 years old and dealing with really, really bad cancer right now. And um, you don't think of somebody passing away from cancer at 48, but it happens more often than you could imagine. Yep. But being ready for that, that's key. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I guess it's kind of like retirement. I like to say this, you know, when you're young, you're, you don't want to talk about it, you know, because it's too far away. It doesn't matter. And when you're old, it's already on you and it's and you're scared to death because you didn't prepare for it. Right. And I think a will is kind of the same way. You don't think it's important until it's really important. And sometimes it's too late for it That's to be right. important. Right. 100%, 100%. And so, 100%. yeah, encourage them. So, well, Steve, man, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. You shared a lot of good news. Uh, we haven't really talked about wills or estate planning or anything on the show before. So I appreciate you sharing some of your wisdom there. And, you know, you guys that are listening, future millionaires, I still remember when I went to work for Dave Ramsey in 2001, uh, a will going through the financial peace university class in the first 90 days. Uh, and I found out about life insurance and I got to where I was terrified to travel because I didn't have life insurance in place. So I went from being naive and not knowing anything to being terrified that I didn't have it in place. Right. And uh, talk about a, a split personality disorder and then uh, the will, right. Getting the will in place. And we've had to put several of those in place over the years because we keep having kids. Funny how that happens. And uh, after six, we're, we're done. So we we're a little bit more stable now and can, and lock down a will, but I need, I need to update mine. Mine's several years old. And uh, have, we need to make a few changes and updates. So how, many, how often should somebody update their will, do you think, Steve? You know, usually what I say is that if there hasn't been a, a change in the tax law or a significant life event, a divorce, a marriage, a death or something like that, if let's say nothing has changed, everything's kind of status quo, I would say every three to five years, you take a look at it. If anything significant happens, like they change the tax laws or you know, there's a divorce or a death, or you have another kid, then I think you need to, you know, that at that point in time, you should at least take a look and see if anything needs to be modified. That's, that's good. And what is the, uh, now you get a little bit of a break when somebody passes away. What's the limit on the amount of a uh, non-taxable uh, estate? Well, a husband and wife could pass an unlimited amount. You could be worth, you know, you could be, you know, the wealthiest person in the world and pass it to your spouse and there's no estate tax. It's usually at the second death. 
And right now, federally, every state's different, but federally, right now, it's about $23 million you could pass between a husband and a wife together. You could pass to your children without a federal estate tax. But in 2026, even if nothing's changed with the current president and Congress, in 2026, it's going to go to about half of that, back to about $12 million, which is still, you know, $12 million, $23 million. I mean, those numbers are eliminating, you know, 99% probably of the people in this country are not going to have a federal estate tax if they die with either of those numbers. But, you know, for the obviously super wealthy, it could be very, very substantial number. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but under Trump, before pre-Trump, it was 11 million, right? Or somewhere around there. And then was it Trump that raised it to 26? And then it now- was du- It was doubled. It was doubled when Trump came in. The, the Republican Congress doubled the exemption from where it was before. But because they did it only with Republican votes, kind of what the Democrats may do now only with Democratic votes, you only could do it for a 10-year period of time, which is why it was done in 2016. And in 2026, it reverts back to the prior law because you can't do it permanent if you don't have 60 votes in the Senate. So basically, so basically in 2026, it kind of goes back to where it was when Obama was president, which is why if Biden was to come in today and change it and do it the same way, it would be happening in 2021. And it would basically go into 2031. And then it would flip back to not wouldn't flip back to where, well, I guess it would. They probably it would probably go back to where Trump's was, you know, and I'm saying 10 years from now probably be whatever the last law was prior to that. A little bit of tug of war going on there with the state plan. Which is why it's so hard to plan because let's face it, you know, you know, we could have a whole dysfunctional conversation about our politics and our people in Washington, DC. But, you know, look, whoever's in power, half the country can't wait to get them out of power. And they get the other one in and then the other half of the country can't wait to get that one out of power. And every time you switch from a Democrat to Republican, especially if they control the House and the Senate and everything, they're just going to change everything, which is hard, it's hard to plan that way. Yeah. Well, I think that I think your viewpoint would be right if you believe the numbers, <laughs> which I no longer believe the numbers. I don't believe the polls. I don't believe anything. But hey, uh, let me share something else with you real quick before we wrap up. Uh, so I've got six kids. I'm kind of transforming my brain thinking and from an estate planning and passing it down to helping them uh, build their wealth on, on their own dime. So there is no transfer. So I, I've been doing some reading on this and, um, and I've written a little bit on this is uh, when your kids start working and you can do a gift to them. And so this concept of actually funding your kids uh, IRAs for them when they start out working. So you can start doing that when they you know start working at Publix at age 16 or whatever, as long as they have a taxable income you can match that taxable income and they can go ahead and start their Roth IRAs in their teenage years, uh, which is something that's all legal. And uh, I'm starting to play with that. I didn't really read about that much till last year. And so I've, my older kids, I can't really benefit from that because they're already 21, you know, they're out off in the college, but uh, my younger kids, I can do that with. So I'm really looking forward to helping them get 10, 20, $30,000 in retirement before they get out of high school. And, never, uh, never, never too early to plan for retirement. No doubt. Well, Steve, certainly, certainly could be too late, but it's never too early. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. How are gonna, people going to follow up with you with the state planning if they have that need? Well, a couple of things. They can go to stephengoodman.biz and they could download a free copy of my book on business succession planning, 
or they can go to shgplanning.com. I have about 70 articles, some videos and podcasts on the site. And uh, uh, my email address is sgoodman at shgplanning.com. And listen, thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, if I ever get up there to Long Island, then I'll have to stop by and say hi. And uh, we'll have, Maybe we'll have some ice cream at Serendipity or something. <laughs> For sure. All right. Take care, Steve. You got it, man. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to talk to someone about what to do with your money or career, but you didn't know who to ask? You can try to figure out how money works on your own, but it's a lot easier and a lot less painful with a mentor. But not just any mentor. You need a money mentor. A money mentor helps you understand the ins and outs of money, getting rid of your debt, setting up your investments, and figuring out ways to help you boost your income. Finding a money mentor is millionaire key number four, and it's one of the most important keys on your financial journey. Let me tell you about a special opportunity I have for you. For a limited time, I'm making myself available as your money mentor. You can book one hour with me for free. That's no charge. One hour may not sound like a lot, but with just one hour, I know I can have a huge impact on your life and finances. It's 100% free, no risk. Visit themillionairechoice.com and register for the free Money Mentor session. That's themillionairechoice.com and click on Money Mentor. That's a wrap for this episode of The Millionaire Choice. Remember, wealth is a result of getting smarter with your money. Wealth helps you enjoy life and help people. For resources, tools, and a community that will accelerate your millionaire journey, go to themillionairechoice.com. The Millionaire Choice Show shares the opinions and experiences of people and should not be considered financial advice. Before making your own financial choices, please seek out a registered financial advisor or certified financial planner. 